Hello. Good evening, David. We're just about to get started. Kyle, should I go ahead? Okay. I'm going to go ahead. Um, and can you hear us now, David, before I start one final test? I can hear you. Yes. Good evening, okay. everyone. Good evening. Let me open us in prayer and I'll do a quick introduction and then uh, we will begin. Merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you for the wisdom of the ages, those who have taught and struggled and served and confessed the faith. Uh, we pray that our conversation tonight would be edifying and informed by your word and built upon the foundation uh, laid by the apostles and prophets, and that we would be uh, faithful witnesses to Christ, who we know rules over all your creation and who also rules redemptively over saints in your church through his Holy Spirit in a powerful and special way. And we pray, dear Lord, uh, that you would bless uh, Dr. Van Drunen, our guest, and those in attendance and those who would hear this conversation later uh, with our, our words this evening, and that they would edify and strengthen and encourage us as we depart from this place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I would like to welcome everybody. I think our camera is up here. Welcome, David, uh, Dr. Van Drunen, and everyone who is here in person. Uh, we are going to introduce our guest. Uh, David Van Drunen is the Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. Um, I am a graduate of Westminster Seminary in California, as well as Luke Gossett, our associate pastor here. Uh, Dr. Van Drunen has been educated uh, undergrad at Calvin College, uh, got his Master of Divinity at Westminster Seminary, California, uh, THM at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and both a PhD and a JD at um, Loyola University Chicago was his PhD and his JD at the same time or similar time was Northwestern University School of Law. So uh, Dr. Van Drunen, we have no shortage of lawyers in the room here, as you can imagine in Washington, DC. So you're in good company. Um, Dr. Van Drunen is a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and he began teaching at Westminster Seminary in 2001. Uh, he formerly served as a pastor of Grace OPC in Hanover Park, Illinois, and he currently serves the denomination on the Church's Committee on Christian Education. And so we are grateful for his service there. Uh, we have been working through in this series, Living in God's Two Kingdoms. Uh, this is his popular introduction to Reformed Two Kingdoms thought. In addition to that, he has published three more scholarly and in-depth books, uh, which have looked at the historical case, uh, Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms in 2009, uh, the Biblical Case in Divine Covenants and Moral Order, a Biblical Theology of Natural Law in 2014, and then uh, this book, uh, Politics After Christendom, Political Theology in a Fractured World, which came out in 2020 and, and won a Book of the Year Award from Christianity Today in Politics and Public Life. Um, so there is a lot of material. He's written many articles, books, also has written a book on bioethics. If that is an interest of yours, that is quite excellent. And so we are really blessed to have him here this evening. Now, uh, Dr. Van Drunen, we've been going through your book, and we've only gotten up through chapter four, which is the Old Testament uh, picture of sojourners looking at the patriarchs and exiles uh, during Israel's time of exile. We haven't yet covered the New Testament argument or some of the practical applications that you unpack there. So um, if you could begin our time tonight 
with a, a 10 or 15 minute summary of what you mean by reform two kingdoms, how you find it to be fruitful teaching for uh, our way of, of serving God in the world and in the church and thinking about those things. And you might want to frame it up a little bit by that New Testament vision that we are given in the church, because we haven't gone through that material yet. But um, thank you for being with us. We're so grateful to have you here. And I'll go ahead and hand it over to you right now. Great. Well, thank you, Pastor Lee. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's a pleasure to be here with you. And I look forward to uh, hearing your questions and comments and discussing these things together. So uh, here is a brief summary. Uh, and um, I guess I would begin uh, by saying, if, if we think back historically, uh, in the early Reformation, uh, you find important reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin starting to speak in terms of two kingdoms. Uh, and uh, there have been some different two kingdoms, theologies, theories uh, through history, but there was a particular stream of two kingdoms thought that developed uh, in the early reformed tradition. And that's really the tradition that I've been working in. And the very basic idea, as I understand it, is that God rules all things. That is very clear from the scriptures. He rules all things through his son, but that there is a basic twofold distinction in the way that God rules. He doesn't rule everything in the same way. And so on the one hand, uh, God has what we might call a creative rule, uh, a rule by which he has made the world, by which he sustains this world, uh, even in a state of sin, uh, through his common grace, he continues to maintain the natural order, and importantly, he continues to maintain uh, human society uh, and the various institutions of human society, uh, such as family and government, our economic institutions, uh, for the good of the entire human race. But also, God has a redemptive rule. Uh, God doesn't just rule by sustaining this world, but he also has a plan of redemption uh, that he has enacted uh, through what we read in the biblical story as it has come to culmination in the work of Christ and now the establishment of the new covenant church, and that will find its ultimate fulfillment in the new creation. And so uh, God rules all things through his son, but he has this these two basic ways uh, that he rules. And we Christians, uh, we live under both of God's rules. Uh, we participate along with the rest of the human race in God's sustaining common grace governance of this world. And we share many institutions and activities with unbelievers. Uh, but we who are believers also uh, we participate in this redemptive rule. Uh, we uniquely uh, have the benefits of uh, that, that Christ has purchased for us. And through the ministry of the church, uh, we have a share already in the everlasting kingdom of Christ. So that, I would take it, is a very, very basic, the very basic idea of that early reformed two kingdoms doctrine. Now, I have tried to take this and work with this and develop it in certain ways and try to apply it in certain ways to our very different cultural uh, situation here uh, several centuries later. 
And uh, one way that I have tried to uh, adapt and in, in some ways uh, modify and enrich that historical doctrine uh, is through wedding that historical doctrine to our Reformed Covenant theology. So I would, I would take it that if, if, if you ask me, what have I contributed in some kind of original way to this, this doctrine, I would say that I think my, my main contribution has been trying to think covenantally about the two kingdoms. Uh, obviously, the Reformed have thought in terms of covenant for a very, very long time. Uh, but uh, I've tried to take these different, this sort of this two kingdoms uh, thought and our covenant theology and try to see how we can wed them together. And the most basic uh, thing that I would suggest along these lines is that uh, first we recognize the, the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God made uh, with Noah and, his, and all creation after the great flood uh, as one of these great covenants. And that uh, here, I believe, is, you might say, the covenantal foundation of this common rule of God, this creative, sustaining rule of God. So I think important here uh, to see is that this covenant, this post-flood Noahic covenant, is a covenant of common grace. Now, to be honest, not every Reformed theologian has seen it in exactly that way, but there is a long Reformed tradition uh, of this interpretation, and I think it's exegetically far more persuasive than any other suggestion. So the basic idea then, and I, I suppose you have uh, seen some of my basic arguments uh, in, uh, in my book as you've been studying it, uh, the basic idea is that in this covenant, God doesn't actually promise a way of salvation. He doesn't promise the forgiveness of sins, doesn't promise a new creation, doesn't promise a Messiah. Uh, but what he promises is that he would sustain this larger natural order and sustain human society. And, and do this for the benefit of the human race in common. And there are certain obligations uh, that the human race has in that covenant, uh, obligations that we as Christians share uh, with our, our unbelieving neighbors. So I see that covenant as the foundation of God's sustaining common grace rule. You might say that it's uh, through this covenant, uh, God exercises his common rule in this world. So then on the other hand, secondly, uh, God has revealed not only this common grace covenant, but this, what we usually call in the Reformed tradition, the covenant of grace. Uh, so there are these various covenants that God has revealed, especially the Abrahamic covenant, uh, the covenant with Israel at Sinai, and now the new covenant uh, in these last days. And through these covenants, God has progressively revealed the way of salvation, uh, in the Old Testament, he revealed the Christ who was to come, and now in these last days, he is well. He has revealed the Christ who has come and who has died and uh, been exalted. And through this covenant of grace, uh, God administers His saving rule in this world. Uh, it's through this covenant that God uh, calls a people up for Himself out uh, out of this world and brings them into a a distinctive uh, covenant community in which we receive the means of grace, uh, in which we have fellowship with each other and with Christ, in which we are prepared for everlasting life. And so I, I would say that uh, 
you don't have to look at the two the, the two kingdoms in terms of two covenants. But I think uh, in, in my judgment that this puts the two kingdoms idea on a really solid biblical theological ground uh, that should be it should be uh, understandable to reform people who are accustomed to thinking in covenantal terms. Now, uh, another important way that I have tried to develop and explain this doctrine is by picking up on this idea of sojourners and exiles. So you indicated that you had read uh, my, some of my comments on this from the Old Testament. So I think it's worth noting that this, uh, I think this is so important because it's the New Testament that actually tells us that we New Covenant Christians are sojourners and exiles in this world. Uh, you find both of those terms in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. And so this is, uh, I mean, in that context, uh, Peter is, he's very concerned about our identity in this world. We live in a, a, a sinful, fallen world, yet who are we as this people of God? And Peter picks out these two Old Testament images to help us understand. So he points us to Abraham and his family in Genesis who were sojourners. In other words, they were those who, uh, they were not settled. They didn't have a permanent home. Uh, they lived in other people's cities. And yet they participated in the life of those cities. Uh, they they participated in the legal, uh, the commercial, the political, uh, the, even the, uh, the military life of those communities. Uh, and Peter then identifies us also with the exiles in Babylon. Uh, and as we know from reading books like Daniel or reading uh, Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah 29, uh, these exiles, they, they were not where they ultimately belonged. They were not living where their true home was. Uh, they were living in a foreign land. And yet they were called they were called to live normal lives uh, in that place. They were called to build houses, to plant gardens, to get married, to have children, to seek the peace of uh, the city in which they were living. And so it's interesting that Peter, he doesn't compare us to Israelites living in the promised land of Israel. That was a really different situation. There, the people of God were they were to be protected from the other peoples of the land. They were to destroy their unbelieving neighbors. Uh, they were to be a holy people in a holy land. And what Peter indicates in 1 Peter 2, and I think this is consistent with the entire rest of the New Testament, uh, is that we, the people of God now, uh, we should not expect to be living in our own Christian holy land. There is no place on this earth set apart for us as our special Christian city. Uh, God wants Christians everywhere. Everywhere there are people living on this globe, Christ wants his church. He wants the gospel to go out. And so wherever we are as Christians, uh, we are not to look at our, our homes, whether it be Washington, D.C. or Escondido, California, or any other place on this globe as our Christian homeland. Rather, it's a place that we are called to live, called to be to participate in the life uh, of that community, uh, called to uh, uh, to love our neighbors uh, within those communities, 
but also to remember, as the New Testament says, uh, says elsewhere, that our true citizenship is in heaven, and that here we don't have a lasting city. Uh, we are waiting for the city of God. And so, of course, our situation is not identical in every respect to Abraham's or the Babylonian exiles. Uh, but in terms of our basic place in this world, uh, these, these Old Testament precedents are, uh, are, are very helpful. And it seems that this, it seems to me, my argument is that uh, this really helps to, to put some concrete flesh on the, on the two kingdoms idea because it helps us to understand how on the one hand, we can really be active participants in the community in which we live and yet not look at our communities as, uh, as our ultimate home, uh, as the place of our ultimate hope. And so maybe with that, uh, I would just turn briefly uh, to kind of wrap up my, my remarks here, uh, just to make a few comments with respect to uh, to civil government, and uh, I I say this, uh, Pastor Lee has has he asked me if I would make a few comments, sort of especially geared towards uh, uh, people living in Washington D.C. and trying to work within its confines. And uh, in my book that uh, Brian mentioned, uh, Politics After Christendom, uh, in the first chapter of that book, uh, I suggest four adjectives that can describe a biblical doctrine of civil government and that in my view provides a kind of a basic framework for thinking about uh, our our participation in our political communities so the first of these four adjectives is legitimate and what i mean by that is that civil government has been ordained of god uh, it is not just a, it's not merely a human institution, uh, a human invention, but that God in, in, uh, has revealed in scripture uh, that civil magistrates are ordained uh, uh, by him to do particular, uh, to fulfill particular responsibilities. And I think that also indicates, that implies, and we can find confirmation of this in the New Testament, that it's legitimate for Christians to participate in politics, uh, to have political jobs, to hold political office. Uh, that is one of many legitimate vocations that we as Christians can pursue uh, in this world. So the second adjective that I identify is provisional. And I think this goes helpfully with the first adjective. Civil government is not only legitimate, God-ordained, but it's also provisional, or we might say temporary or penultimate. In other words, uh, God has put our governmental structures, our civil magistrates in place for a time. Uh, they're not permanent. They're not ultimate. Uh, these, uh, th they exist for, uh, for certain purposes in our, in our world, which is corrupted by sin, and yet sustained by God's common grace. So I think these two things are helpful to balance. Uh, our governmental structures are legitimate, but they're also provisional. So we shouldn't put our confidence and our hope in these institutions. The third uh, adjective uh, that I've suggested is common. And but I, what I mean by that is that God has ordained civil government, not just for the benefit of Christians, or just for the benefit of one 
one people group or one socioeconomic group, but actually for the good of all people, uh, whatever their religion, whatever, whatever their ethnic background, uh, whatever their place in this world. Of course, government fails so often in this, but this is what government ought to be. And so one implication is that when Christians are involved in politics, they should see their responsibility not as trying to create some kind of special place for Christians or some government that gives Christians special favors, but uh, law and government that is for the good of the human community uh, generally. The last uh, of these four adjectives is accountable. Uh, so just because we say that government governmental structures are common or ought to be common for the good of all people, uh, it doesn't mean that it's sort of an open free-for-all morally. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's no, no moral standards uh, that ought to govern uh, our, our civil uh, institutions. Uh, scripture makes very clear uh, that uh, God has ordained civil magistrates to do justice, and not just a justice of their own imagination, but a justice that is in accord uh, with God's own standards. That doesn't mean that civil government should be enforcing every single point of morality. I don't think there's no Christian who's really thought that. Uh, but uh, all civil uh, officials are going to be accountable to God on the last day. And uh, and so uh, all ought to be undertaking their office uh, with that in mind. So Pastor Lee, I will uh, end my remarks there and I'm happy to hear what's on everyone's mind. Yeah, that's a very uh, good introduction and framework for us. I have two quick follow-ups that I think uh, could maybe frame it a little bit further, and then we'll go to audience questions. Um, the first is you, you talk about God establishing via the Noahic covenant, uh, this civil government as a source of justice in the world. And, um, your project relies, you've written a lot about natural law. That's a hotly contested area. So I, I get that you could give a whole lecture, a, a class on natural law, but could you briefly talk about the relationship between that justice that the civil government has access to through God's natural revelation, natural law, as you call it, and how can, you know, I think often believers look at the world and they see such chaos in our governing uh, bodies, both in America and abroad, a lot of lawlessness, a lot of tyranny, a lot of uh, oppression. Um, could you say a word about, you know, what's the state of, um, what do you understand by natural law? What should we think about biblically? But also, this is a contested topic today. How do you address the problem of natural law? Yes, uh, that's that's not a small question. You are correct. Uh, I, I would, uh, you know, there are so many, there's, there, there's so many possible ways to kind of get at that question. I think one very helpful basic way to, to begin thinking about this, I think, is just to point out some of the basic biblical evidence uh, for this idea. And Romans 1 and 2 have been really the, the classical uh, texts that Christians uh, have gone to. And I think quite properly uh, in the second part of Romans 1, uh, Paul speaks about uh, how God 
uh, reveals himself uh, through the things that have been made. And we call that more generally natural revelation. And Paul also explains there as he develops uh, that idea through the end of Romans 1, that this revelation uh, of, of, of God and of truth more generally through the created order holds all people accountable so that there's no human being who lives in this world who can say on, on, on the day of judgment, well, I, I didn't know. I didn't know there was a God. I didn't know I'm, I'm accountable to him. Uh, and then as Paul gets towards the end of Romans 1, he makes this kind of rather remarkable statement uh, in, in the very last verse, uh, Romans 1.32, after listing a whole bunch of sins that humanity falls into through a kind of rejection of the natural order, he says, even though people know that those who do these things deserve to die, they continue to do them and approve of people who do them. And so Paul makes this point, I think, quite clearly that uh, people not only know God, but they know something of his basic moral law, and they know that when they break that law, they deserve God's judgment. And, uh, and if you want to put this in some bigger biblical theological context, I think we can go right back to Genesis 1 and see the foundation of this, because one of the things that is so clearly communicated in Genesis 1 is that God made this world orderly, he made it beautiful, he made it intelligible. It, it, it is a, it's a kind of world that communicates uh, God's righteousness, uh, uh, God's power, uh, and uh, even though this world has fallen into sin, it, it's, it's under a curse. Uh, God has maintained in, in an orderly world. And so I think one of the things that we do as Christians, especially in this present day, uh, when we live in a basically in the midst of a of a kind of a postmodern cultural context in which a lot of people want to say that there is no ultimate meaning in this world. Uh, this world does not have an inherent order. And in fact, we have to we have the liberty to impose our own order on this world. And of course, that 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 has a special resonance now with issues of sexuality and gender, where you know I I can I can choose my own identity uh, in this world. And I think the the affirmation of natural law is one way that we affirm a traditional Christian view of of creation and providence, and to say no, actually uh, there is a in in order to this world that God has made, there's a meaning in this world that God has given. God has given the meaning in this world, and our responsibility is not first of all to impose meaning upon this world, but to in receive that meaning from God and to live in a way that's in accord with that. So, to just to uh, to try to wrap up this, and I really haven't specifically answered your question yet. I mean, I would say when it comes to thinking about this in its relevance for law and government. Uh, I, I do think it's important to say we should not expect natural law to give us some sort of a detailed civil code as if we could just, you know, by rational deduction, we can come up with a detailed 
law of the United States that's going to answer all of our public policy questions. I don't think natural law is going to provide us with that. What I think it does is it provides a basic framework for understanding basically who we are as human beings and the basic things that we owe each other. Uh, and uh, we are going to have to, by, uh, by the wisdom, by the good judgment that God has given us, we're going to have to try to work out the details of what that looks like uh, in our complicated world. Uh, but so I, I, I don't think natural law by itself is going to resolve every debate that we have about detailed political issues. But I do think that it provides a basic moral foundation that can give us some confidence as Christians, even in the midst of our moral division or our political divisions and sort of the just the political mess that we're in, to say, you know what? When it comes down to it, every single person knows that there's a God and the basics that we owe to him and each other, and that we are accountable to God. And uh, I, I still think that there are many ways that we can prick the consciences of our, our neighbors and uh, to offer testimony to what is good. And if not to bring utopia into this world, uh, at least to, uh, to offer a testimony to uh, what is good and what, is, what will actually conduce to the well-being uh, of human beings rather than to their harm. That's very helpful. And there's a question submitted by one of our members that I think follows up on that nicely and uh, maybe focuses a little more. You, you spoke of, of the Noahic covenant. And the question is, what is the relationship between that Noahic covenant, the sort of the moral content there, and the creation covenant, the moral content in that natural law? And then the second part of the question is, what about the first table? right? Is, is the first table something that the civil government should be enforcing? That is, for uh, listeners, the first table of the law oriented to the worship of the true God. Is that something that God, through nature, is trying to uh, as well? How is that impressed upon the heart of fallen humanity? And how is our wickedness constrained vis-a-vis um, you know, you think of that use of the law where God's law constrains our wickedness and the civil order preserves us from being as wicked as we would otherwise. Does the civil order, should they in any way enforce that first table in terms of the worship of the true God? Okay, thanks. Yeah, that is, uh, th those are great questions. Uh, again, big questions. And uh, I, I would, I, I, I like getting both of those questions together because I, I do think that my answers are they're connected. Uh, so to begin with the first question, uh, I believe that there is, uh, there's a very close connection between the original creation covenant and then what we see uh, at the end of Genesis 8 and Genesis 9 with the, uh, the post-flood Noahic covenant. Uh, I would, I, the, the way I like to put it, uh, and I, I don't, I don't know if I put it, if I use this language in my book or not, I wrote that book, I mean, it's, it's it's getting almost 15 years ago when I wrote that book. So um, it, it's almost a little embarrassing. You can't remember what you actually wrote in certain places. So uh, the way I like to put it is that 
the kind of moral order that we find in the creation covenant was refracted uh, for uh, the human race in the fallen world in the Noahic covenant. So to back up, uh, yes, uh, there was the, the original creation order, creation covenant revealed God uh, through the natural order. And of course, God uh, gave by special revelation, what we call the uh, uh, the cultural mandate or the creation mandate. Uh, we are to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. We're to rule over the other creatures, to do the other creatures. And you can see when, when we get to the Noahic covenant, you can see a lot of that same moral content. And that makes sense because uh, it's still the same world that God has preserved. And yet it seems that in the Noahic covenant, we find... Uh, we, we find that moral, those moral commands shaped in certain ways that accommodate our fallen condition. And so, for example, uh, in the Noahic covenant, Genesis 9, 6, you find that command, uh, he who sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. Now, you don't find that in the original created order. And there's a good reason for that. Well, there was no sin. <laughs> there, was no, there was no murder in the original creation order. And so we don't find that kind of revelation of what we might call retributive justice uh, in that creation order. Uh, but now in a fallen world, if, if human society is to continue in some sort of orderly and peaceful form, we're gonna need a justice system. Uh, we're gonna need some way in which wrongs are punished, in which victims are protected and vindicated and so uh, I, I think that's one really good example, maybe, maybe the most prominent example of how we see a kind of a moral continuity between the original uh, creation covenant and then that common grace Noahic covenant. So I, I could follow up more on that uh, if uh, you'd like, but uh, maybe I'll turn to the second question now. Uh, so this is a, a great question. In fact, it's, I, I had a student in my office uh, this morning who asked me almost exactly the same question. So uh, I guess I was being warmed up uh, for you. Uh, you know, here is a place where I would have some disagreement with our early reformed forebears on the question of the first table of the law and the responsibilities of the civil magistrate. And I would just be open and frank about that. Uh, our uh, 16th, 17th century reformed theologians almost basically uniformly thought that civil magistrates should take up the sword in defense of the true church, in defense of true worship, in uh, to punish blasphemy and heresy. And uh, I don't take that position. And in fact, most reformed churches don't take that position any longer. Uh, the, your Belgic Confession has, has changed its statements on that. Uh, the Westminster Standards have changed uh, its statements on that, at least in our uh, American context. And I think that's, that's, that's really good. Uh, but you can see there was a kind of a logic in some of the early Reformed writings. And so, and, and, and this I think is, is uh, along the lines of what the question was, was asking. So many Reformed theologians argued, well, the civil magistrate is bound by the natural law. That's its moral foundation. The first table of the law is part of the natural law. And so therefore it's proper for the civil magistrate to enforce things in the first table of the law. Uh, 
So let me respond briefly to that. So one brief response initially is that I actually think there's an internal contradiction within Reformed theology if you try to press that argument. Uh, so even while Reformed theologians were making those sorts of claims, they were also making claims about Reformed worship, about proper Christian worship, and saying, uh, we only know how to worship God properly according to the scriptures. Uh, we should conform our worship only to what scripture prescribes for us. Right? By natural revelation, we can't know. I mean, we, we can only know very generally we should worship the one true God, but we can't know specifically that we should have preaching or baptism or the Lord's Supper or what those things mean, except as scripture has revealed them to us. So I think that there's sort of an internal contradiction to say the civil magistrate working by natural law ought to be protecting the true church and true worship and true doctrine. Well, we only know those things through the details of special revelation. And so I hope that makes a little bit of sense. So that's, that's one part of my response. Uh, a second part of my response is this. Uh, just because something is revealed in natural law does not necessarily mean civil government should be enforcing it. To say that natural law is the moral foundation of civil government doesn't mean civil government has to involve itself in everything that is part of the natural law. So for example, uh, no one has ever thought that the civil magistrate can enforce the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment is part of the natural law. It's part of the, uh, this, this natural moral law. We should not covet, but that's not something that civil law can enforce. Uh, so that's uh, that just one uh, example right there. Uh, and uh, here I would bring in my my concerns about the Noahic covenant, or at least th this is a place where I think it's very helpful. Uh, it seems that we should, when we're thinking about the civil magistrate, what is the civil magistrate's jurisdiction? What is his authority with respect to the natural law? I think we should say, well, we need to interpret that through the lens of the Noahic covenant. Right? What are the purposes of civil government in a fallen world? And I would argue that, uh, that the Noahic covenant ordains the sword for the rectification of intrahuman wrongdoing, when one person sheds another's blood. Uh, and uh, God has not ordained that sword for the vindication of his worship, for the vindication of, the, of true Christian doctrine. And uh, one way we can see this in the Noahic covenant is that the purpose of the Noahic covenant itself is to preserve the human community broadly. Uh, the Noahic covenant doesn't say the protection of God's common grace is only for believers. It's only for those who profess the true faith. Uh, the protection of the Noahic covenant, it extends to the entire human community. And so if the civil magistrate takes up the sword against anyone who worships falsely or holds to false doctrine, uh, it defeats the purposes of the Noahic covenant. It makes the it makes the civil sword for the benefit of Christians and not for the benefit of uh, of all people. So those are some of the I, I could go into more detail about all of those things, but those are some of the basic 
some of the basic response that I would have. And so uh, just to wrap this up, I would say, uh, I, I do think that the civil magistrate can offer some, some benefit or have a certain responsibility with respect to the first table insofar as the civil magistrate offers a general protection to the church, allowing it to worship and to teach and to fulfill its ministry uh, in safety and, and defends the church from violence and from those who would try to keep it from doing uh, its proper work. So I, I think if the government, civil government is doing its job just as a matter of God's common grace, uh, the church will benefit but it won't benefit uniquely to the detriment of, uh, of, of others who, who claim the same protection uh, from, uh, from the state. This is a very narrow question. So um, one of our members emailed, they couldn't be here tonight, and they said, what, what duty does the civil government have to acknowledge the creator? Um, Psalm 2, for instance, seems to set up God rebuking the kings of the earth for rejecting God. Um, let me put a fine point on it. This is my contribution to the question. Is it a good thing that our constitution references a divine power, a creator God? Um, is our constitution a, a better civil constitution than one that has no reference to God at all? How would you answer? Sure. Yeah, I... Uh, uh, so I would begin, I, I, th this is not the question as I understand it, uh, but it's potentially a related question. Uh, I, I think it is, it's good that our constitution and our, our civil government does not make a profession of, a profession that is uniquely Christian. Uh, I don't think our constitution should profess that Jesus Christ uh, is the son of God, the savior of the world, according to what we know by uh, God's special revelation. I believe that would be in violation of the spirit of the Noahic covenant in which government is for the good of all people and not is not to be a uniquely Christian uh, institution. But I, it seems to me that if civil government uh, does in fact, if it is accountable to God, and not just a generic God, but it is accountable to the true and living God who is making himself known uh, in this world, that it's certainly not improper for civil government to acknowledge that there is a God uh, who uh, is the giver of good things and uh, to whom we are uh, uh, accountable. So I don't have I don't have any theological problem with doing that. I think that is that seems consistent uh, with with our theology. Is it required? Uh, I'm not. I, I I wouldn't go so far as to say that. Uh, I don't. Um, it it seems to me that if we read texts like Romans 13, 1 through seven, which is our most detailed New Testament text regarding uh, civil government, uh, there is the the legitimacy of civil government does not depend upon the religious profession of our magistrates. Uh, I think it's we can. We want magistrates that are that have a sense of justice and equity, and I think we're glad when we hear that serious Christians are elected to office. That's good, uh, but I think it's important that we remember that uh, religious profession does not 
uh, it is not required for the legitimacy of, of civil office or our obligation to offer proper submission uh, to that. So I, I don't think it's wise to demand or to think that it's somehow required that our governments make some sort of religious profession, even if it's uh, relatively general. All right, one of our members, Hayden, has a related question. I'll let him ask that. All right, hello. Um, hello, Dr. Benjernan. Uh, thank you for everything you've contributed uh, to this important conversation. Um, so yeah, on a related note, I was wondering, so from a two kingdoms perspective, how should we as believers approach this sort of cultural Christianity we've inherited, um, particularly in the public sphere when it comes to things like school prayer, uh, having chaplains um, placed in the federal government and state governments, and um, having Ten Commandments, monuments, things like that. Um, should we seek to preserve those sorts of things? Is there a, a required stance, or is it more of a prudential matter? Just curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, I. I I think I, I might look at some of those examples a little bit differently. I wouldn't necessarily have exactly the same response to 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 all of those. But uh, in general, I would say uh, I from 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 my perspective, from the sort of the the two kingdoms perspective as I have defended it, uh, I have a pretty dim view of that kind of cultural Christianity that you're uh, that you're describing. Um, I, I I I don't want to. I'm not taking a position that we should ban religious language or religious references from the public square. That that wouldn't be my 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 position at all. But I, um, uh, I I am concerned about a sort of shallow association of American government with a kind of generic Christianity, and. Uh, I think that there there has been too much in our in our country's history, a sort of uh, kind of this surface uh, conviction that we are somehow special to God, uh, that we are uh, America is God's country in some special way, and if we have a conflict with another country, we sort of assume that God is on our side. I mean, how could God not be on a side of America? And you know, we can pray for God to bless America, and that often kind of implies don't bless. Our, our rival, uh, and uh, I think things like school prayer. Uh, you have well, I, I was I. I don't know if there's if there's anyone there uh, old enough to remember the days of public school prayer. I I didn't go to public school, so I I, I was too old anyway, or uh, too young anyway. To, uh, but it I I sort of asked the question: uh, Why would we want? American public schools to be leading our children in prayer. Uh, why would I want some public school teacher whose religious views are who knows what to be somehow teaching my children about the right way to pray? Uh, why would we think that God is even going to listen to the prayers of some random public school teacher uh, I, who who knows what he or she believes? I, so. Uh, I, I am concerned about this kind of veneer of religiosity that is sort of instilled a kind of confidence that God is on our side for no really good theological reason. And 
Now, you know, I, th I think some of these issues that like you, you mentioned chaplains, uh, that I, I think that's kind of a complicated question. I, I, I do think that it's, uh, you know, we want people in our military who are off who knows where uh, on some ship in the middle of the ocean. It's kind of nice to think that they might have uh, some opportunity for spiritual counsel. And so, you know, I, I don't want to take a hard and fast view on something like that, although I think even the whole chaplain thing can lead to a lot of very bad theology and practice. So uh, maybe I could just leave it at that. And um, if you'd like to follow up, I'd be happy to uh, interact further. Okay, do we have any other questions scanning the room? While people get the courage up to ask another question, because I'm sure someone might have one, could you, um, you mentioned that your view and our modern view is different from the 16th and 17th century reform view vis-a-vis -vis using the civil sword to enforce the true religion. Could you very thumbnail sketch, list the alternatives to a two-kingdom view over the last 2,000 years, um, either today within the reformed world, I gather you come and talk a little bit about your background in living in God's two kingdoms, um, sort of a neo-Kyperian and or medieval. What are different visions for the church and the state? And just briefly, what you know, what's the good case for those views? Are they picking up on something that your uh, two, uh, that a two kingdoms view is, is failing to address biblically an impulse for the Christian church? Sure, uh, I can, I can mention a, a, a few things prior to the Reformation that might be helpful. I, I think one uh, one paradigm that has been extremely influential in the history, at least of the Western church, is Augustine's idea of two cities. And I have tried to make the case in some of the things I have written uh, that, that Augustine's two cities shouldn't be confused with the Reformation two kingdoms. They were not getting at exactly the same thing. Uh, they're compatible, but they're just trying to answer a bit different questions. And so Augustine's two cities, uh, which which I would agree with, uh, is uh, that uh, th that uh, one city is the city of God. Uh, it is uh, it is ultimately this heavenly city, and all true believers through history belong to that city. And while we are in this world, we are pilgrims on the way to that city. The other city, sometimes referred to as the, the earthly city, or uh, it's ultimately the city of Satan, it's the city of, of destruction, uh, that consists of all unbelievers, and they are in this world sort of on their way to everlasting punishment. And uh, yet in this world, the members of these two cities interact. And there's room for commonality. There's room for common activity and engagement. And uh, so that, that, that was basically Augustine's vision, which has been extremely in influential. Uh, through a lot of the Middle Ages, uh, you had this idea of the two powers or the two swords, uh, which, and that was basically a jurisdictional uh, idea. Uh, I would probably have to explain that to most congregations, but since you've, yeah, this is DC and you got a lot of lawyers, too, you know what I'm talking about. So, uh, the one sword in this in this idea was, uh, you might say, the the civil sword, uh, the physical sword, the sword of justice, 
which was entrusted to the civil magistrate by God. And then the other sword is, you might say, the sword of the spirit, uh, the spiritual sword, uh, the word and sacraments, you know, and, that, and that's been entrusted to the church. And so, you see, that's a little different distinction from Augustine's two cities. Uh, that's, a, that's something that explains sort of how authority is to be exercised in this world. And that was sort of incorporated into this, what we might call a Christendom vision. Uh, so through, you know, from the, the, the late, the late early church, if that's not a contradiction, the late early church through really until relatively recently in history, we have lived in this Christendom context in the West uh, in which it was sort of understood that church and state are going to be in some sort of agreement, have a common Christian confession, but sort of divide up the labor uh, in uh, in some way. So the, the two swords uh, served that purpose. And then you have this development of the two, king, uh, two kingdoms idea in the Reformation, which we've talked about. Uh, and so th these ideas that I've mentioned are, they're not identical, but there's certain overlap between them and you might hold one alongside the other uh, to, to some degree. Uh, to bring things to the present and to think about the, the current reformed community, I, I, the, the, the main alternative uh, to what the, the kind of two kingdoms vision that, that I'm talking about uh, is what would be called maybe a, a um, neo-Calvinism or a neo-Kyperianism or maybe a, uh, a transformationism. And uh, this really has been the dominant view in the reform community over the last several generations. Uh, I mean, when I was, and you know, uh, Brian, you were, I guess you were a few years behind me studying at, at, at Westminster. I, I don't, uh, so, you know, say in the nineties, when we were getting our theological training, uh, no one was really talking about the two kingdoms. I mean, it, it, it was almost as if this kind of neo-Calvinist paradigm was the only game in town. And people might have had a few objections here and there, but no one really had an alternative to this, at least not a kind of a sort of a well-articulated uh, alternative to this. So the, the basic idea uh, is this, and th there, there, there are a lot of different kind of different details or different forms of this, but the basic idea is that um, uh, God, God created all things. All things have fallen into sin. And now uh, God in Christ is redeeming all things. Uh, he's redeeming all social structures. Uh, so it's not just the church that is sort of the, the place where we see the kingdom of Christ being ministered and uh, uh, you know, that, that, the, the fellowship of that kingdom being expressed, but all areas of life, whether the political or the economic or the scientific or the artistic, uh, every area of life uh, is to is part of this redemptive kingdom, and that Christians are responsible for transforming every area of life to to conform to that eschatological kingdom. And uh, I didn't grow up in I, I so I I grew up in the the Christian Reformed Church. Uh, some parts of the Christian Reformed Church have have been and are heavily neo-Calvinist or transformationist. The kind of the 
Chicago suburban Christian Reformed Church in which I grew up. It was sort of in the background, but it wasn't really it it wasn't really pressed as an agenda the way it it was in uh, some some other places. But uh, the I, I think what is healthy in this in this tradition is a real interest in 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 all of creation. Uh, the idea that God has made all things and that there uh, that Christians have a valid vocation in all sorts of areas of life that it over against certain sorts of Christianity that are very uh, quietistic or uh, kind of uh, want to just retreat into their own ghetto. Uh, it's good that Christians go out uh, and it's good that we have Christians in Washington, D.C. who are, who are involved in uh, national political life. It's good that we have Christians in business. It's good that we have Christians in the laboratory. It's good that we have Christians in the symphony orchestra. Um, it's, it's good that Christians are farming and raising children and so all sorts of things that, uh, that we're called to do. And I think that's a really healthy uh, emphasis. My, my critique is not on that point, uh, I don't. I, I I appreciate that point. I don't want to combat combat that, uh, but I do think that this perspective, it very often has a kind of a triumphalistic uh, emphasis, and it has. Uh, I think it, it it has a view of how Christ's kingdom is expressed here and now, which is broader than that which is taught in uh, the New Testament. And I think we, that we as Christians are not to be looking at our, our vocations in this world as vocations to bring in Christ's eschatological kingdom or to transform every part of life to make it conform to this eschatological hope that we have. And this is where I think my the, the imagery of sojourner and exile is very important. Uh, I think there are... There are certainly a lot of practical issues. I would I would agree with the way a lot of neo Calvinists look at them, but uh, I do think that the kind of two kingdoms perspective that I've advocated gives us a bit more of a modest, uh, humble perspective on what we are called to be doing uh, in this world, and uh, uh, allows us. To understand ourselves as being faithful, God-fearing, neighbor-loving people in this world, active people in this world, without placing upon us this, what, what I've called the eschatological burden of trying to bring in the kingdom uh, wherever we find ourselves. So um, we do have a question back here. Wonderful. You go for, just introduce yourself. If you Hello. Uh, thank you very much for speaking with us. I'm Emmeline. And I have two questions about sort of practical application. One is, and, and forgive me if I misunderstand your position. As from my reading of people such as Thomas Boston or Jeremiah Burroughs, I'm very accustomed to thinking that every physical blessing, every everything in this world that I enjoy, I enjoy in Christ. And I, I have not personally thought of myself really as being under a common grace covenant 
at all, really. I mean, in the last year, I think of, you know, everything is in, enjoyed in Christ. And so I'm wondering, is that in conflict with what you've been saying? Secondly, relatedly, if I were president of the United States, I would, I would feel as though, I mean, that's never going to happen, but if I were, I would feel rather hypocritical and even, even like I had divided my soul in two, if I thought of myself as uh, in the operation of civil government as as not being permitted, say, to speak of Christ or to behave in, in a way that people would just know openly, oh, this, this president believes in Christ, N- not necessarily through legislation, but just through rhetoric. So for instance, I, I think if Trump were a Christian that he should have during the COVID pandemic, I think it would have been wrong for him not to say something about how America through its sins merited such a plague. I, mean, I would think that a Christian president would be under obligation as a Christian, not as a president, but as a Christian to express something like that. So I don't know if I'm, if I'm mistaken in that, I would be very interested to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, I think what you were relating from uh, reading Boston or Burroughs, uh, I, I, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, and I, I think it's actually compatible with, with what I'm saying. Uh, I, I would say it's more of a both and rather than an either or. So I would say that uh, there is there is this common rule uh, of God in this world and that uh, so many earthly material blessings we have, we share in common with unbelievers. So I think about things that I, you know, I think about the food God has given me or the home God has given me or the fact that I have a wife and a son, uh, or the fact that, uh, you know, I'm, I, I have good physical health. These are not things that are unique to me as a Christian. Uh, I, there are plenty of non-Christians who enjoy these things. And so in that sense, uh, these things are, are blessings of God's common grace. So in scriptural language, God gives rain and sun uh, to the righteous or to the unrighteous as well as uh, the righteous. So I think it's important to affirm that. On the other hand, uh, I think it's really important to say that, uh, I mean, Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so uh, even our common grace blessings are not, they're not isolated from Christ, or they're not independent uh, of Christ. Uh, uh, and so as a Christian, uh, I know that my the fact that I have good food or a good home or good health, it doesn't, I, I don't have those necessarily because I'm a Christian, doesn't, it doesn't set me apart uh, from non-Christians. But I know that as God as God gives me good things and as God takes away good things from me in, in the course of life, that he is working out all things for my good. And that every blessing that I have is, I ought to receive that with thanksgiving uh, to God. Uh, I ought to use whatever, whatever health or strength or blessing I have uh, as a way to be serving Christ, serving my 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 neighbor, and uh, I I give thanks for these things uh, in Christ. So I would want to look for ways to affirm both of these things. I, I it seems to me that that would give us a full biblical picture rather than just looking at one aspect of, of that. On your second question, uh, I I. I'm generally sympathetic uh, with what I, I I hear you saying, 
I I think it would be kind of a travesty if a Christian were elected president of the United States, and we we over four years we never knew it. Uh, it 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 would it would seem that uh, that all of us who are Christians, as we're leading faithful Christian lives, people who see us on a regular basis ought to be able to see that there's something about us that is different and the way we talk, the way we act, the way we order our weeks of worshiping on the Lord's day uh, and uh, the way we respond uh, to people. And that should be true of all of us ordinary people, but for someone who's in the public eye, uh, the way the president of the United States is, certainly I think that's that's all the more all the more the case. Now, how that works out, I think is that's, that can be a difficult question. I mean, I, I I think the one way you put it is that it wouldn't necessarily be, be through legislation that this would come out. And I would say, yes, I, I think that's right. It's not a Christian president of the United States shouldn't be seeing this as a platform in order to somehow impose an official kind of Christianity upon this country or to give Christians special benefits or something. Uh, uh, but I think the way the president speaks and conducts himself ought to testify to the fact that he is a believer in Christ. Uh, it, this wasn't your, actually, this is the previous question, wasn't it, about Psalm 2. I mean, I think uh, the, the New Testament actually quotes Psalm 2 a number of times. It never quotes it in a way to suggest that, or some kind of theocratic interpretation. I mean, I, I would be inclined to say it's, yes, uh, all the kings of the earth, all the rulers of the earth, they ought to confess Christ. Uh, we want the gospel to come not just to ordinary people, but to the rulers of this world. And um, whether that's Joe Biden or Donald Trump, whoever that is, they ought to confess Christ uh, and be faithful to Christ in that calling uh, that they have. Now, I'm not the uh, Emily. I think you said uh, the 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 the. The, the, the last thing I say, the, the, the one thing you said that may be a little, a little uncomfortable um, when you talked about the response to the pandemic, uh, uh, it's not clear to me that we should interpret the pandemic as a judgment of God uh, for particular sins of the United States, if, if I was hearing you properly. I, it's, I, I think God's providence is more mysterious than that, that uh, we need to be very careful about interpreting you know, bad things happen here or there in terms of God's punishment. I, I, I think it's it, it it may be the case, but I'm not sure we can be confident of that. So I would probably want to demur on on that one. Uh, but uh, well, those are a few comments. Uh, um, we have one here in the back. While uh, actually, can you take a microphone back? I'm going to ask you a question before this one, kind of following up on what we just had. Um, you've mentioned eschatology a few times, and obviously there are some in the reform camp uh, who take a post-millennial eschatology where the world will be transformed by the good, by our church, by the Christian witness. Um, there have been books on Christian nationalism of late. There's, from a Roman Catholic perspective, integralism, arguing for a more powerfully present Christian public square. Um, could you respond to those from a two kingdoms perspective, how you hear those proposals and where you would disagree? Yes. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to be brief. Uh, the, um, 
Yes, I, I would have I would have difficulty with all of them for many of the same reasons, but not exactly all. When I wouldn't interact with them necessarily in identical ways. I think the yes, I, I it, it does seem to me that a the kind of two kingdoms perspective that I have defended it fits by far most comfortably with an amillennialist eschatology, uh, an eschatology in which we believe that. Christ is Christ is ruling. He has been on the throne since he ascended to heaven two thousand years ago, um, and the gospel will continue moving forward. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. There will be a multitude who are converted and come to Christ, but uh, that is that will happen alongside the ever present reality of sin and rebellion and persecution uh, of of Christians, and. Uh, there are times that are going to be better, times that are going to be worse for Christians. Uh, we're not going to be able to, there's no pattern for this. We can't, you know, we can't predict how these things go. Uh, we are simply called to be faithful until Christ returns. So it is the church under the cross for as long as this present age uh, endures. Uh, as opposed to a post-millennial perspective that does, as you were saying, have this confidence that uh, through the advance of the gospel through the spread of Christianity, that not only will you get lots of Christians, but that there will be this uh, the, sort of this increasing prosperity and justice and righteousness that pervades uh, throughout this world. And frankly, I, I don't think scripture gives those promises. So uh, there's that issue. Uh, I think with uh, with the whole Christian nationalism, we'll we'll, we'll see how this goes. There, it, it's sort of this kind of pretty recent kind of resurgence of of of, of interest in Christian nationalism, and uh, I'm very nervous about this. I, I you know the idea of nationalism is is kind of difficult and complicated. It depends what people mean by that. I think some people mean a sort of a you know having a nation state is better than other kinds of political organizations. I think that's an arguable position. Um, I'm not sure there's a Christian view of that. that I think we can just we can argue about that. Uh, some people might mean that patriotism is a good thing, and I would say, sure, uh, modest a modest patriotism, I think, uh, is usually uh, a good thing. But I think there are more, uh, I, in my view, suspect forms of nationalism, uh, particularly when it's wedded to Christianity and the idea that. Uh, either America has been or should be a Christian nation, uh, that this is our heritage and that this is what we ought to be promoting and defending. Um, uh, maybe I don't need to see, say a whole lot more about that since I think I've said a lot of things already uh, uh, about that. I don't think that uh, if we read the, the New Testament honestly, we read that the Christian community is the church. Uh, the the international church, the, the the church that is hopefully in every nation and in every community and in every language, uh, and we don't want to wed the nation state with Christianity. Christianity does not depend upon uh, the nation. The New Testament does not promise uh, that any nation will be able to have some sort of Christian status. It doesn't promise prosperity to any nation that confesses Christ or sets up a certain sorts of laws that are somehow consistent with that. Um, and the, I, I think I would make a lot of similar comments with the Roman Catholic uh, 
integralism, which I find interesting. Uh, and in some ways I can understand why Roman Catholics are, are attracted to that historically, but I'm, um, uh, I'm less sympathetic with why uh, Protestants would want to develop a sort of a uh, Protestant version of that, which I think is what a lot of this Christian nationalist talk uh, is. All right, uh, Harry, do you have a question? Uh, yes, I do. Thank you, Dr. Vendred, and I enjoyed your book. Uh, I have a question basically about special revelation and its place in the public square. And my understanding of two kingdoms being that it would kind of exclude it to a big degree. And my question is why? So if we have in the Old Testament, you had the, the prophets regularly sent oracles to foreign governments that were outside of the covenant community. In the New Testament, you have John the Baptist uh, reproving Herod for violation of the seventh commandment. Uh, to the extent that we have the ability, shouldn't we want to have our congressmen and senators reading and quoting scriptures in their debates in the House of Representatives? And should we want to have schools that are are having good you know prayers ideally and and influence them to the extent with Christian uh, influence in in schools and have schools read the Bible? Do we want light in all these places rather than darkness? Or it, it seems to be that this interpretation of Noah covenant implies that there is a neutral area between light and darkness that we should try to be in. And I, I don't understand that or see any basis for that. I think um, I'd appreciate your thoughts on that. Thanks. Sure. Thanks. Yeah. I, I, well, I, I would want to, uh, I would, I, I would definitely want to nuance uh, any view that, uh, that would suggest that somehow special revelation is entirely excluded from the common kingdom or the public square uh, or Christians, you know, uh, interaction uh, with that. I mean, so, you know, my, the, the, the thickest book I have written uh, is uh, Divine Covenants and Moral Order, a, a biblical theology of natural law. So like 600 pages on natural law, but it's a biblical theology of natural law. Uh, and you know, I've 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 written about the Noahic covenant, uh, and the Noahic covenant is revealed in the scriptures. And you know, my book Politics After Christendom is 400 pages of a theo biblical theological interpretation of civil government and how to how to think about it. So I think the first thing I would say for clarification is, uh, I I absolutely think that we as Christians uh, we ought to be thinking about about, uh, well, I mean, everything in biblical terms, insofar as Christian, insofar as scripture thinks, uh, talks about those things, uh, insofar as scripture speaks about uh, civil government or about our public common life, I think we're obligated to be trying to think in those terms and to be learning from scripture and to be we can help each doing things like what we're doing right now, trying to help each other understand and work through uh, uh, these things in a faithful Christian way. And I would, uh, alongside that, I would say absolutely, uh, we don't turn our our biblical mind off when we're thinking about the natural law. I think we want to interpret natural law in light of the the clearer revelation that God has given us uh, in in Scripture. So I, I hope that at least that much would offer some nuance or clarification of the way I view things uh, anyway. And when it comes to, uh, say, the public square itself 
and how Christians engage the public broadly. Uh, here again, I would not take some sort of a rigid view uh, that we can't bring scripture into that or something. I, uh, it, it seems to me there that we, we're, we're going to have to use good judgment as to what is going to be the most effective in different circumstances, given what the goals are of that particular uh, sort of uh, setting or exchange. Uh, one, one concern I have uh, is that if, uh, if we're dealing with certain kinds of public policy issues, controversial uh, uh, issues, that if, if we're too quick just to kind of bring scripture in and start quoting scripture, uh, that we give the impression that this is this is a Christian thing we're talking about. I, I was really concerned about this when, when, when I don't know, ten years ago or so, when uh, when gay marriage was on a lot of legislative and judicial agendas, and you know, uh, some Christians who were trying to intervene in those in those debates, and I think with a lot of good motives. And you you quote scriptural passages. You kind of you're, you're communicating something that this is a Christian issue. Uh, we know these things because the Bible has said these things. Well, there's an element of truth to that, but there's an element in which that's that's not exactly true, and it's not necessarily helpful in the public square. Because I want, I I think that marriage is not just a Christian thing. Uh, I think that marriage is a human thing. Uh, I think that marriage is uh, the proper structure of marriage is something God has revealed in natural revelation. And I don't want to give the impression in the public square that this is just something that, you know, something that we Christians can talk about because the Bible talks about it. It's sort of an invitation to say to someone who doesn't believe the Bible, well, it's not really your uh, your issue. You don't really have a reason uh, to uh, to obey this. And And I, if you think about, uh, the abortion issue. I think there are there are some there are actually some great natural law arguments against abortion, and I don't want to be too quick in the public square just to say, oh well, you know, Psalm fifty one says we were sinful from the time our mothers conceived us, and Psalm one thirty nine says that God cared about us when He was making us in the womb. I I would definitely want to bring that testimony. Um, forward in a lot of cir circumstances. I would look for opportunities to bring that forward. But I think it's I think it's important that we communicate in the public square that these are human things and that every human being has an obligation not to pursue abortion uh, that uh, my my un my neighbor might be an unbeliever. But even if that person doesn't accept biblical testimony, I think that person ought to be pro-life. And I think we should be uh, thinking creatively about how we can bring the whole testimony, even of the natural order to people, to prick people's consciences, uh, and not too quickly try to identify issues as Christian issues that give people an excuse um, to ignore uh, if they are not Bible-believing people. I think I will leave my comments there. I think there's 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 more to say, and I I appreciate your concern, but I hope that at least brings some clarification to the way that I would uh, I would approach these issues. I think that's a wonderful note to close on. You've fulfilled your your commitment, your promise to spend time with us, and 
I want to give you the chance to just say, uh, to sort of sign off and say one last word. But I want to, um, I, I read a line in your Politics After Christendom book today that reminded me sort of our, of our temptation to doom and gloom as Christians look out over the political, the cultural landscape. And you, you referenced that the idea that commonness is a promise of the Noahic covenant. So in addition to enforcing justice, the Noahic covenant is God's pledge and promise to sustain a common order until Christ returns. And I don't think I had ever that clearly thought of that, that promise hopeful element we have, that God is far more patient than we are and won't break that promise. And so I, I want to thank you for that perspective uh, personally, and I think into this conversation, how important it is for us to be confident of God's promises and that Noahic promise. But if you have any closing words, I want to give you a chance to, to sign off. And after you go, we're going to sing Psalm 90. Singing over Zoom is weird. Uh, but uh, you reference as well, God's promises, a thousand years is as a day. And so we'll be singing that after after we sign off tonight. But do you have any final words for us? Sure. Well, th thank you for those uh, those kind remarks. And thank you for the invitation. It's been, it's, it's, it's fun to do this. And I commend you all for uh, thinking about these matters and whether or not you agree with all things I say, I think it's great that you're thinking through this and uh, uh, trying to be faithful. And yeah, so just to pick up your, your the last comment, I think it's um, uh, God doesn't give us a particular He doesn't give us a promise that we are going to flourish and prosper in our political life, but He does promise that uh, He is going to continue to sustain this world, and I think that does give us that does give us motivation and hope to continue trying to be faithful in whatever place God has put us. Uh, confident that he will use our labors in ways that he is pleased to do it, uh, whether or not it's something that we're going to read about in the newspaper or that it's going to go down in uh, the history books. And and I think this relates in some ways to my answer, my the, the answer to the last question from the gentleman I don't think I was able to see in my uh, uh, on my screen, in that I, part of my concern is that I think we can be creative in the way that we go about our, our work. And I think we... Um, you know, our, our, our political fortunes as Christians come and go, but uh, we need to see where we are and to try to, uh, to try to bless our neighbors uh, in whatever situation we are. And that might, that's going to mean we might act in some different ways at some different times. Um, but we should be, we should be always confident in God's providential government, uh, even when we're not very confident in our own actions and our own uh, our own civil governments. So thank you. I will uh, I will listen to you sing. Uh, I'm sure it will sound nice, uh, but uh, you'll forgive me if I don't sing all by myself uh, here in my office. <laughs> all right. We'll yeah. We'll we'll let you mute your mic and you can listen to us sing. I'm going to turn my mic off and make sure all the other mics. Oh, if if our mics are off, yeah, you won't be able to hear us. So we're going to okay. Well, gonna... I will. Uh... Thank you so much. I, We're going to be forward. Thank you. Thank you.